Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Kevin Tanzi. Kevin has played professional hockey all over the world and is currently playing for the Herning Blue Fox in the top tier of Danish hockey. However, life has not always been smooth for Kevin. He has suffered through a physical assault, as well as 12 broken bones, 21 shoulder dislocations, two surgeries, and three concussions. These extensive injuries led to an ensuing dependency on painkillers, which forced him to look for alternative recovery and pain remedies that can't cause a dependency. Kevin found a new path with CBD, and after witnessing the positive impact it had on his career, became a firm believer in this natural alternative to the traditional pharmaceutical options recommended to recovering athletes. Kevin has co-founded Impactive, an Ottawa-based company with the mission of providing athletes the best hemp-derived CBD products to redefine their recovery routine in a quick, safe, and natural way. Basically, to become the substitute for painkillers in the locker room. Welcome, Kevin, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thanks for having me, Andrew. I am currently in Denmark. And uh, I'm doing pretty well, doing pretty well. We're uh, doing pretty well this season and, you know, working away and having a, a good time doing it. That's great. And and what is your lifestyle like? What what part of Denmark are you in? Um, so I'm in Hernan. It's pretty much right in the middle of the country. Uh, everywhere in Denmark, the furthest you can be from the ocean is about 45 minutes. So always close to the coast. Uh, the weather is pretty wild here. It can be... <laughs> It can be sunny in the morning and I go and brush my teeth and, you know, take a shower and I come out of the shower 10 minutes later and it can be a storm. So it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting weather over here. And how do you, can you get by, excuse my ignorance, can you get by with English or do you have to learn some other languages while you're there? Yeah. So over here in Denmark, it's pretty bilingual or trilingual. They speak a bunch of languages, but English is definitely one of them, yeah. So I'm, uh, I don't really have to learn too much. I try to learn the the kind of words to get by, just to be a gracious kind of stayer in Denmark, but uh, it's not necessary. And and what's the typical viewpoint of the typical Dane to you? You're like Canada means hockey, so you're this Canadian that comes in. What what kind of is the perception of you, and, and do you think it's changed since you've been there? Uh, the perception of me, yeah, I think uh, guys see me as a, a hard worker. They know, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a hockey player. They know that I, I love to do what I do. And they also know that I have a CBD company that I run. And I think uh, all in all, they're, they're pretty, they, they like me a good amount. And they're impressed with sort of the work ethic that I have in terms of hockey and also my business. And uh, living in this new part of the world, what's the most interesting food you've been able to try? Are you a, a, a courageous eater or do you like to stick to your basics? Uh, I usually am a courageous eater. I am. I was a vegetarian until I was a vegetarian for about the last year and a half until I came to Denmark. And then since I got here and being so close to the ocean, I decided to start eating fish again. Mm-hmm. So I guess pescatarian now. So. There's a, a lot of good fish here. It's so fresh. The sushi is great. Um, any kind of white fish is great. Any kind of shellfish, just because of 
how fresh it is, how how close we are to the ocean. So it's definitely a big benefit of being in Denmark. And are you a master of the kitchen or are you a uh, Uber Eats kind of guy? I do like to cook. I uh, do like to cook a lot, especially given uh, before I started Impactive or, or the life of a pro hockey player was essentially come home around noon and you have the whole day after practice. So uh, it definitely gives you some time in the kitchen. Not so much since... Uh, started impactive and been working during uh, during those hours instead of having the time to just you know relax and watch Netflix and prepare a meal but I uh, do like to spend time in the kitchen I am curious about the daily life there as a pro hockey player do you want to lead us through a typical let's let's say on a typical game day what is your day like typical game day so we have to be at the arena by 10 o'clock in the morning and so I get up around 8 30 make myself a good breakfast, just kind of do like a little slow morning where I leave around 9.30, give myself about an hour to wake up, do a little bit of stretching, you know, sometimes watch NFL or NHL highlights from the night before. Then I get in the car, go to the arena. We do, you know, a quick little warm up there. Nothing too serious for me. Guys are on their own page a little bit on game days and I like to exert most of my energy during the game. So I kind of just go through the motions a little bit in morning practice, um, do a quick stretch, get on the ice. We have about four or five drills for a total of about 20 minutes that we go through on the ice. And then after that, some guys stay out, depending on how I feel that day, I'll stay out on the ice and maybe take some one-timers or, you know, shoot on the goalie, just whatever I'm feeling that day and get out, have a shower, um, do a little bit more stretching and then we have pregame meal. Pregame meal, I usually kind of block it into two. Uh, there is a provided pregame meal for us around 12.15 for a 7 o'clock game. And so I'll go there. I'll eat a soup and a big salad. And then I'll come home and I'll cook some sweet potatoes or some rice with some tofu or some salmon or uh, sometimes some portobello mushrooms or different things like that. And then usually I just... Um, take a little time to myself. I usually have about an hour to an hour and a half nap before a game, uh, watch some Seinfeld or watch the office, just <laughs> kind of like light TV. That's not, uh, not don't have to pay attention to too much and just kind of melt into the couch before or after the meal and then have a nap, get up around four o'clock, get in the car around four thirty, and get to the game two hours beforehand. And once the game's end, Kevin, what happens from there? Is there a, you, you clear the zone and get home again, or is there kind of a, a typical process to wind down? Yeah, I mean, processes is tough to wind down depending on, you know, the game. It's always a little bit different. Obviously, road games, you just kind of want to get home, get on the bus as fast as you can. When we're at home, I usually like to do a cool down for about 20 minutes, half an hour. I get undressed in about five, 10 minutes go into the gym upstairs. Um, I'll have a protein shake. And then in the gym upstairs, I'll, you know, take a, a light bike for 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how I feel, how much I played that game. And then I'll usually spend another um, 15 or 20 minutes doing a very, very light workout or just stretching again, depending on games, or I'll go see the physiotherapist, depending on if there was any, uh, injuries in that game or not so usually uh, after game is usually probably about an hour until i'm home from after the the game ends and uh, the danish pro leagues are they playing on an international ice surface or is it more of a north american ice surface 
Yeah, so it's an uh, internationalized surface over here for the most part. Every every rink is, I mean, it's the, the rinks differ in size, but I, I think they're all bigger than the standard North American one. There might be some that are just NHL size uh, in terms of the ice surface, but for the most part, they're bigger than North America. And does that suit you? Are you you're a big guy? Are you more known for your skating, or do you like the bigger ice surface? I do like the bigger ice surface. Uh, usually, usually I like to skate with the puck. Um, you know, I'm, I, I have long legs. I have a good stride, and I like to have a little bit more space. So I, I do do a little bit better with a little bit more space with the puck for sure. And how many fans are we talking about at a, a Herning home game? Would you estimate? We we get about three thousand fans at our home game. That's pretty intimate. Yeah, yeah, it's a smaller rink, but it's pretty pretty full most times. And uh, give us one example of the uh, cultural difference between the uh, Danish hockey fan and the Canadian hockey fan. Um, it's different. Uh, just sports in general over in, in Europe are are different. The the fans are much more engaged. There's sort of chanting and songs throughout the whole uh game we have a drum that someone has basically beat in through the whole game for kind of our pep band to uh like our fan section to just be chanting along um whereas in north america i just find there's you know more people who just kind of react to big hits or a goal or a fight uh in europe it's just sort of the whole time people are just chanting a few different songs and it's it's a pretty cool experience it sounds like a great atmosphere yeah yeah it's pretty cool are there uh, Kevin Tanzi fans out there? Do you get fan mail? Do you get recognized in the town of Herning? Um, every now and then, I'll, I'll get recognized here or there. It's uh, you know, it's not it's not too crazy. Um, I've played in places before where it was a lot a lot more different, but here it's uh, definitely hockey is more of a third sport, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, football or soccer um, is number one for sure in Denmark, and then there's handball is very big here as well. So after that, hockey kind of has its place in third place. So don't usually get recognized, but um, you know, every I think it's happened three or four times where I've been out and someone has recognized me. Well, hockey's been such a central part of your life. It's exposed you to the whole world. It's also exposed you to your business life. Let's, with your permission, go all the way back. Let's get the Kevin Tansy story. Where were you born and describe your upbringing? I was born in Toronto. And I moved to Hammond, which is a small town about 45 minutes east of Ottawa. Moved there when I was two years old. Started playing hockey when I was four or five. Played my whole life uh, at the highest level I could, pretty much. And, you know, went to, went to elementary school and high school in Hammond and Rockland. And um, started my hockey career, started playing Tykes then grew into Rep B, started playing double A when I was about eight or 10 years old. And then triple A came in when I was 14, started playing that. Played my first game junior A hockey when I was 16, played a full season there. Then I committed to Clarkson University while I was 16 years old, playing for the Cumberland grads. I'm just going to yeah. interrupt you there, Kevin, because I want to hear about this process. When you were making your decision on a university, Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York, is where you ended up going. But what was the process of deciding where you wanted to play college hockey? It was a long process. It was growing up in Ontario and being a hockey player, you hear a lot more about the OHL than you do college hockey. I was a fan of the 67s 
growing up in Ottawa and, you know, went to their games whenever I could and thought it was pretty cool. You know, I, when I was 14, 15, 16, I thought that that was sort of, in my view, I was thinking that was, you know, kind of the top. And then once I make it there, I can see where I go from there. And so I was drafted to the Plymouth Whalers, which was a team in Michigan um, in the eighth or ninth round when I was 15 years old and went to their camp. There are rules for the NCAA where you can't, I mean, there's a ton of rules, but there's rules where you can't accept, you know, a hockey stick or equipment or cash or anything like that to be, to remain eligible for the NCAA. So I stayed at the Plymouth Whalers camp for about 48 hours just to maintain my eligibility. And I did quite well. They had told me after that, that they probably would have had a spot for, for me on the team, which I mean, I did have a good camp, but at the same time, I realized that they probably tell a lot of their players that who are considering waiting for uh, college. But they told me that I would have had a chance to stay to play as a 16 year old, but it would have been as the seventh or eighth defenseman. And I would be going up and down between teams. And so I just decided to go back home and play juniors and close to my hometown, which was Cumberland. I was drafted to Cumberland 10th overall in uh, the Ottawa Junior A draft and had a good season and was talking to a couple of schools and Clarkson was the first school who officially gave me a scholarship offer. And I uh, basically jumped at it, said, all right, let's, let's go for it. So committed to Clarkson. I think it was around probably January of my 16 year old year. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty cool experience. Well, it's fantastic to combine your hockey with an education. I mean, it's all lining up for you. In 2012, you had just completed your freshman year with the NCAA Division I Clarkson University Golden Knights hockey team. And at 19 years of age, the best was yet to come. And you were excited about your future. You were at a buddy's house in Ottawa for a summer hockey school one night. And a horrific incident changed your life. Do you want to talk about what happened then, Kevin? Yeah. Um, so I don't know exactly what happened because I don't remember it. But essentially, I was staying at my friend's house because we were working a hockey school the next morning. And at the time, I was still living with my parents in East Ottawa, East of Ottawa, about 45 minutes from where the hockey school was. So I was staying there just so I didn't have to get up at five o'clock in the morning. And we were playing video games. There were three of us. And the standard rule is, you know, whoever does worse gives up their remote and and waits until the next game. So I did worse that, that one time and went to go get my bag outside. And um, it had been about 10 minutes had passed. I had you know, just parked right outside and my friends were wondering where I was, what had taken me so long because they knew that I was just parked right out there going to get my bag and coming back. And they looked outside and they, they saw me passed out um, on the sidewalk. And so they rushed outside to kind of come help me I got woken up where I, I just sort of came to and sort of gave like a big gasp. And at that time, I, I stood up apparently and was saying like, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then I started throwing up violently almost immediately. Um, and then so an ambulance came. I had a seizure in an ambulance. I was put into a medically induced coma. I had had my skull cracked. I had a brain bleed, which resulted in losing my sense of smell, which to this day has not returned. I was 
in a coma for just under two days. I broke my shoulder, which resulted in 17 or 18 dislocations at the time and required surgery. And I also broke three ribs. So pretty, uh, pretty terrible uh, time and place to be and uh, definitely suffered some some consequences to the body and mind. And and just for clarity, Kevin, the incident that caused all this was a um, uh, an, an unknown assailant attacked you. You were bludgeoned with a blunt object, like for no reason out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I uh, like I said, I don't I don't remember anything, um, but from the description, uh, obviously something to crack my skull must have been a pretty pretty. Uh, thick object and I didn't have any defensive wounds and I'm not the kind of guy to one if if I had been told by these people that they were going to take my phone and showed me the blunt object I, I you know would have just said here you go here's my phone and two I didn't have any defensive wounds on me so if you know there there was a situation where it became a fight then I would have liked to think I would have at least been able to do something so what the, the, the police figured was that they one or probably two people just saw me texting and jumped me from behind and just grabbed my phone and ran. You ended up, as you note, in a coma for just under two days. When you came out of it, you were then introduced to the painkiller Percocet. And for the next three weeks, you couldn't remember anything. You'd wake up thinking you didn't know you're at Clarkson University or am I in Toronto with my friends. This was the first time you had been given painkillers or Percocet. What do you remember about that? So the first three weeks were a blur. Um, I'm, I, I think that might be probably more because of the head injury than the actual painkillers. Um, it was more when I, when I first got injured, I, you know, I'd wake up one day thinking I was at school or I would wake up thinking that I was with friends and, you know, it just, I was in the hospital the whole time. Um, when you go through a severe head injury like that, Everyone's a little different. There's not really a, a status quo on steps to recovery or, you know, what will happen. Um, to be frank, the, the injury that I sustained, there's no, it's pretty rare that people survive through it. So I, I was pretty fortunate to come back as, as myself. But um, essentially, three weeks were a complete blur where I wasn't myself. I was thinking I was someone else. I was in somewhere i was i was doing other things um in that time i lost about 80 pounds just because i was in a bed and then one day you know three weeks to a month later i woke up and i i for some reason i was just kind of me again um you know i, I was more coherent i was understanding where i was it was sort of like everything had just kind of returned a little normal and because of the 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 pain I was suffering, I, I was, you know, given the, these, these painkillers. And at the time I, I really, I, I wasn't a fan of them. I was taking them. And I, I remember saying like, I don't like these, they, like they, they change who I am. They, they make me feel a way that I don't like to feel. They make me feel dis like disassociative, like distant from my relationships, from who I am as a person. And so at the time I, I was, you know, trying to not take them very much. And um, it wasn't until I started the recovery process and talking to doctors about wh where this injury leaves me with my hockey career, because at the time I was 
planning to go to NHL camps. Um, I had, you know, I had been to the Toronto Maple Leafs camp the year before that. Um, I was talking to three or four NHL teams about going to camps that year. And so the forefront of my mind was how, how do I get better? How do I get back to being me? Obviously with those kinds of injuries, um, the, the shoulder surgery, the, the brain injury, the skull injury, the losing 80 pounds, um, there, there's a, a long road to recovery there, which took me, it took me about over a year, I'd say to get fully recovered. And in some instances, I never fully recovered because of, you know, the lack of sense of smell that I still to this day don't have. And once I started visiting doctors to get my diagnosis, I don't know if that's the right word, but get my kind of feeling of what they said. And the first doctor who wasn't really a sports doctor at all, he basically shut me down and said, like, you shouldn't play hockey again. And at that point, that was kind of what had, had loomed on on me. And that was a possibility that I that I knew was a, a very big reality. And at, that's the point where I just kind of I didn't have I didn't really have the emotion, emotional capabilities or emotional strength to to deal with it and to sit with it and be able to come to and understand that one, this is one doctor's opinion. And two, that's some heavy stuff that you just that you get thrown on you after you've just had, you know, the the heaviest, the heaviest couple of months of your life. Um, and so that's when I really started reverting back to remembering what those painkillers did and how they just kind of made me feel like a shadow walking. And that was sort of a feeling that I wanted to get back to and a feeling that I, I, and it's, it's weird because I, the, the, the word abuse still seems weird to me because, you know, when I, when I think, when I think of abuse, it's the, the kind of stigma that goes around with abuse is, oh, I wake up and I need it. As soon as I wake up, I wake up, I need it as soon as I'm, I, I am, which is not, wasn't how I was. It was more that, you know, if I was, I have a bad day or, you know, there was a social setting and I had some, it was just kind of, you know, if it was high stress, I would just lean on these things and just kind of escape the world that was going on and not knowing what my future was holding, not knowing what a next concussion might do to my head, not knowing what, you know, an extra dislocation after my surgery or just basically trying to escape the anxiety that went along with what had happened to me. Because at that time, as a 19, 20 year old, I, I, you know, I wasn't emotionally mature enough to admit that, you know, I, I, I need to see somebody about this. I need to talk about what had happened to me. And my way of dealing with it was to use a substance or, you know, any substance that just kind of let me escape those feelings and let me escape what I was going through and just kind of shelf it. And, you know, eventually I figured out that that, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the right way to do it. Well, as you know, your doctor cautioned you against playing hockey again due to the head trauma. As you note, this was like, this is an absolutely crushing diagnosis for you. It's, you know, your dependency is increasing on these painkillers. However, you, after obviously missing the 2012, 2013 hockey season with Clarkson, you did return the next year, but you were still dependent on these painkillers. After games, maybe you had to block a shot, or as you know, you had to deal with some emotional issues. You were still using them. 
Now you kind of, as you note, you rallied, you realize I need to kick this painkiller habit. Your friends and family, I'm sure were helped. They don't really exactly know what you're going through. You did manage to though, finish at Clarkson. You graduated. Once I came back to school, the doctors figured it would be a, a good idea to just kind of take it easy. So I took the minimum amount of courses my first year back just to, you know, get back into the learning process, get back into spending days in in class and learning. And, you know, again, with, with the injury that I sustained to my brain, it was one of those things where I didn't know whether my attention span would go, whether I would have some kind of learning deficiency. So it, it, it took a little bit of time there. And then Clarkson was also a school that, is pretty famous for engineering and math and i'm pretty famous for not being good at math <laughs> so, um, what a mix yeah exactly so it was also one of those things where you know after after two years i realized that i, I committed when i was 16 and i committed because of hockey so at that time it wasn't a huge university either it was more of a specialized university so i realized that not a lot of the degrees there really made me tick so i just kind of at that point said all right we're gonna try this hockey thing and figure out just get a degree in the back pocket get that piece of paper and you know have it as a, a fallback plan so went with liberal arts and uh yeah hey well congratulations i'm sure your parents <laughs> were happy because you could combine your hockey and get your education ho 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 the holidays are here at henderson brewing company Sign up for a subscription of Unique Beers, where each month you will get our current small batch beer release, plus three other tap room only beers mailed anywhere in Canada. Available in four, six, or 12-month subscriptions, these packs make a great gift for any beer lover, including, hint, hint, yourself. Order now at hendersonbrewing.com or visit their tap room and retail store at 128A Sterling Road along the West Toronto Rail Path. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. So, Kevin, after Clarkson, you began your career as a professional hockey player. You played three years in North America with, I, I love some of these team names, the Chicago Wolves, Grand Rapids Griffins, Stockton Heat, Toledo Walleye, Kansas City Mavericks. After three years in North America, however, you decided to move overseas and you subsequently suited up to play in pro leagues in the Czech Republic, Austria, Slovakia, and Denmark, where you're currently playing today. However, when you initially turned pro, you got a bit of an eye-opener on painkillers in pro sports. Do you want to talk a little about that? Yeah. So we, when I started uh, professional hockey, I fortunately was in the, the time where I stopped using the painkillers and had begun to stay away from them and realized what they had done to my body. And once I got to pro and w was just, you know, around... I want to say adults because we're adults in college as well but really you know grown men with kids and stuff and you don't see that in, in college and so I there's a lot more options for things there's a lot less stuff out there for legality reasons when you're not dealing with teenagers and I just saw that it was it was so readily available for players and there wasn't really any clean options to recover with it was short of you know, muscle stimulation or massage or ice. It was, you know, to actually deal with the pain, it was all these chemicals. It was, you know, help with sleep was ambient or, you know, there was, you know, there's Percocet, there's Oxy, there's, 
there's Toradol, like there's all kinds of stuff there, but there wasn't anything that was a natural help to dealing with, you know, the anxiety or the pain that, that comes along with being a pro athlete. And it was also the first year that I was introduced to CBD. There was a fellow on my team who was also working with a CBD company and he introduced me to it. And I was familiar with the cannabis plant um, growing up. My, my, my family just has always kind of been close to the cannabis plant and had never, you know, I, I definitely partake in it and never really thought of it for a recovery reason. It was more, you know, Saturday night at a bonfire with friends, you know, you spark up a joint or something like that. And this was, uh, was eye opening for me because it was you know, the benefits of, of the cannabis plant and, and the cannabinol that didn't make you feel high. And it was, you know, local and you would apply the cream or take the drops and you wouldn't feel high, but you would feel better. You would feel less anxious. You would sleep a little bit better. And there wasn't any, you know, big long-term side effects that have that, you know, these painkillers have. Let's start, if you don't mind, with a proper definition of CBD. Cannabidol is, it's an active ingredient in cannabis that's derived from the help, help the hemp plant. And essentially what it does is it, it, it helps with relieving symptoms of anxiety, depression. They have inflammation and pain easing properties as well. Um, you know, there, there's, there's all kinds of stuff with it. There's some, some of it has helped with history of epilepsy and seizures and essentially it's, you know, it's, it's not intoxicating. And what, how we do it is we just use a topical and for our topical, it's, you know, it's local, you put it on and the, we have a system that's called micro micro encapsulated or sorry, nano emulsification. And what that does is it makes the cannabinoid, the cannabinoid a little smaller. So it works better in the system. So essentially to dumb it down a little bit is it makes the cell smaller. So it gets into your bloodstream faster. And after that, it's, I mean, after five, 10 minutes, you, you really notice the, how the, the muscles and the spasms go down and it's just a, an incredible, an incredible plant and, you know, really, really believe in it. And, and as you note, the big benefits are it does not cause a high and it's not addictive. Yes, exactly. And when you say topical, Kevin, I guess it's like a roll-on. Yeah, yeah. So we have, uh, we have a roll-on. It's essentially like a, think of like a smaller deodorant stick. Mm-hmm. And so you just roll it on for three to five seconds, wherever the pain is. And it, uh, you know, helps, helps decrease the inflammation and helps take away the pain that, you know, it, it's, it's really, uh, it's really crazy. It's a full spectrum. It's a uh, full spectrum and really, really works. Well, you talk about how you got introduced to it and then how'd you end up starting a company in 2020, you dislocated your shoulder while playing in the Czech Republic. And since the team needed someone else for the playoffs, they bought out your contract, but this was a good thing because it provided you the seed money to start your CBD venture with a buddy, and you ended up relaunching Impactive earlier this year. So what is the status of the venture now? So the status of the venture now is we were acquired about a year ago. Uh, we were acquired in 2021 of October, 
And that was by a publicly traded company. We relaunched in September of this year. So we're kind of sort of another new company, but not really. Um, we're the same brand. We just kind of have some back in now. And essentially our goal, like we said in the beginning of the podcast, is to become you know a substitute for painkillers in locker rooms because we really see a need for a natural substitute in, in sports because players are calling for it. You know, we've sent it to lots of NHL and NFL teams and it has to be kind of kept under the, under the sheets a little bit because although they're not tested for it, although they're not, you know, it's, it's okay if they use it, they can't actually promote it. Teams mm. can't sign with teams at this part at this time because of the collective collective bargaining agreement. And because of that, it just has to be kind of a little bit kept under the rug. And that's essentially because of the stigma around the, the, the plant. And everybody is still kind of looking at it in the old ways of, oh, you're just a stoner or oh, you just want to get high, where really it's just athletes wanting to have a more natural way to recover. And so we're trying to push that that narrative and we're trying to, you know, help help athletes because you know the the two founders myself as a pro hockey player and my business partner brett he's uh he's trying to get onto the corn ferry tour you know we're we're both active athletes and we know the toll that training and and pushing yourself to be you know at the top tier physically for your sport does to to a body and the stress it puts on it and you know, we, we've both used painkillers in the past and we've both used CBD and we just can't believe the difference in the two and we can't believe even more that it's not more readily available. Well, as you say, the effect is local. You don't feel a fog in your brain and it's not going to hurt you 20 years down the line or, or lead to a dependency. But you also note the use of CBD isn't well known. And in fact, you have a pretty good story about a teammate of yours who saw you rolling the CBD onto your leg. What was his reaction? Yeah, in, uh, in Toledo, I had a teammate... Uh, in playoffs, I was rolling it on my leg, and uh, a teammate turned to me. He's like, "What? What are you doing?" I was like, oh, "I was putting my seat, like uh, my hips, my hips a little sore, so I'm putting this on." He's like, "Are you, are you getting your leg high right now?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> man, that's not what it does. Like, just, just alleviate some of the pain and helps helps with the inflammation and just kind of the tightness goes away." So, yeah, that was a, a pretty funny conversation to have. How do you get approval from the NHL, and and more importantly, I guess approval by team training and medical staffs? It's tough. Um, in terms of the actual NHL, um, in the collective bargaining agreement, they cannot do deals with cannabis or CBD companies. So that's that's in the in the contract. It's unfortunate. Um, you know, it's hopefully going to be rewritten soon. And that's that's more just actual deals. Whereas where we can, where I've been able to see successes, send some to players that I know on different NHL teams and. Um, you know, there's a lot of staff, especially older players who have played in the league before and have, you know, witnessed it firsthand what it means to be a professional hockey player. Those are the guys that are, are really helping along because, you know, they, they know what the painkillers do and they know what CBD does and they, they see a need for it as well. So that's usually where we get into locker rooms is, you know, I'll contact a player that I know or an, an old player that I know. And just send him a bunch of samples and say, hey, like, you know, we, we know we know that nothing can be done right now, but we're, uh, you know, if, if you need a little bit of help on the side, sort of, again, 
under the rug, we can, we can send you some and it's, you know, just getting it in their hands, getting it in front of people so they can see the benefits of it is, is really the way to just kind of chip away at the, at the big uh, blockade in front of us. Well, it sounds very grassroots, very word of mouth, which is great. Now you have some brand ambassadors representing impact of your company. Do you want to talk about those brand ambassadors? Yeah, absolutely. So we, again, we, we started, um, how, because of all the marketing and, uh, the marketing capabilities and advertising capabilities that are associated with the cannabis and CBD industry, it's really tough. We can't have commercials. We can't, we can't boost on Instagram. We can't boost on Facebook. We can't put anything on TV or radio or anything basically. So we're kind of neutralized into going through ambassadors and our system has been getting athletes who believe in us, getting trainers of athletes who believe in us and working with them. So we have, uh, we have Dr. Troy Van Beesen and we have Colby Toulier who are two trainers and chiropractors and just, they work with world-class athletes. Um, you know, Colby works with, uh, he works with Dustin Johnson. He works with Tiger Woods. He works with, um, Scotty Scheffler. He works with a ton of athletes and, then same with Troy, he works, um, Justin Thomas, he works with the Corda sisters, he works with the Dallas stars and our mindset with them was get it in their hands, have them using it. And, you know, down the road, you have them using it with these, these great elite athletes and just getting some, some availability for them to see it too. And again, it's grassroots. We want, we want to grow the right way we want to be able to have athletes and trainers who believe in us. And we also have, um, Kelly Whaley, who's an up and coming LPGA golfer. She loves the product. So we have her as an ambassador. We have, we have Mark Fraser, who was an original ambassador. He's a, I I've been working out with, well, I had been working out with Mark when he was playing since I was 12 years old. Um, we're from the same, well, he's a little bit, in a different area of, of Ottawa from me, but we had the same trainer and we also had Matthew Barnaby as well. Um, we have Will Wilcox, who is an old PGA player who had a dependency on, uh, on drugs, who had a, a quote from golf digest that went viral. And the quote essentially was, I was a PGA tour player with a drug addiction. Mm. Um, and so we, we talked to him and, you know, we, we love this story of recovery and we wanted to get involved with him. So um, we really want to have ambassadors that believe in us and that we believe in and believe in our product and our mission and, you know, the fight to really bring athletes a, a better way to recover. Well, it certainly sounds like you're on your way because uh, as the gets more into the system, so to speak, and people see the benefits, you're going to get a lot more conversion. I want to talk to you a little more about your uh, hockey adventures and lifestyle. How'd you end up initially playing in Europe, Kevin? How'd you end up over there? So for players like me who I was never drafted to the NHL, um, I you know played a, a good college career, but I was never you know a, a top superstar to like watch out for this guy. He's becoming pro. I was just you know a good dependent um, at the time in college, first or second line player, but at when you're a first and second line player, you know, it kind of drops down to sometimes maybe third, fourth line player in pro. And so I tried for three years in North America to just see 
you know, if I had my chance, if I, if I was able to take it and, you know, do something with it. And for me, it, it wasn't really in the cards. Um, you know, call it for one reason or another, there's a lot of good hockey players out there and not everybody can make it, unfortunately. So for someone that was at my level, there's an opportunity to one, make more money over in Europe. And two, you just get to travel the world. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've seen because of hockey, I've, been fortunate enough to live in one, two, six different countries. And through that, I've been able to visit another 10. And that's all because of hockey. If I hadn't played hockey, I would have you know, never seen this part of the world. So that's pretty amazing too. So that was part of the decision. Absolutely. And then there's also the fact that in the ECHL and American League, you play 72 games, I believe. Whereas in my league here, I play 48. So you get to travel, you make more money, and you play less hockey. So it's a little bit of a, there's a few benefits for sure. Sounds like you figured out the equation. Have hockey stick, we'll travel. So yeah, it's great. exactly. It's great that you've been able to see the whole world. I'm just curious. I don't see anything on your resume from Sweden or Finland. No, I uh, haven't been there yet. Um, I've, I've had some options in, uh, in Sweden. Um, it was actually a place that I was considering going this year and uh, decided to take the, the job in Hernan instead. Um, in Finland, I haven't really had any sniffs out there. It's a, it's a really defensive game in Finland, and um, it's just not not as much my style of hockey, so I've stayed a, a little bit away from there, but who knows what the future holds. I have to ask you, have you played any former teammates that uh, have gone on that we would know about? Yeah, I've played against some big names. I mean, I've, I've played when I was in North America in exhibition games. I've played against Patrick Kane. I've played against Artemi Panarin and played against um, Seabrook when I played uh, an exhibition game for the St. Louis Blues. Last season, I played against Yarmir Yager, which was incredible. Yeah. Um, he's 50 years old. I played against Thomas Placanitz. I played against David Krejci. Those are, those are the really big names, I'd say. And then... Just growing up, you know, there's a lot of a lot of players that I've played against. I played with Carter Verhage, who's in Florida now, I believe. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've played against and with about a hundred players who have been in the NHL at some point in their life. Any good uh, Yager story? Is the rule of thumb you're not allowed to touch him as he's coming down the ice? Or? You can't you can't do anything to him. It's it's <laughs> crazy. It's we. Uh, so he's he's essentially a god in Czech and we we played against him on his 50th birthday and he would play he would play probably five to seven minutes a game when he had the puck you could tell he still had it because you know he would make the best possible pass but when he didn't have the puck he was just kind of floating around trying to not to, to get himself into spaces but he was I mean he's 50 years old so obviously a few steps slower than everybody um, but it was funny because in, in the time that we played him at their rink on his 50th birthday, he probably should have gotten at least three penalties. Um, just like we, they'd have the puck in our zone and we'd intercept it and go on like a quick three on two or three on one break. And you would just see him like bear hug the guy next to him. So he couldn't escape and hold on to him for like a solid two seconds. And like, you couldn't even complain. You couldn't even look at the ref and be like, what's going on? You just knew, like, it's Yager. Like, it's, no one's going to call a penalty on him. So that was uh, pretty interesting. And then he's got uh, – he's he's like the he's like the real-life Jackie Moon there. 
um, of, um, <laughs> of, uh, Tropic or not Tropic Thunder, but um, semi-pro. Like he's the coach, GM, and owner and player of the team, and he would have he would have like a massage therapist after every shift come and like rub down his legs after every single shift, just go and like massage his quads on the bench. It was it was pretty uh, pretty funny to see. It's good to be playing in front of your hometown crowd. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. <laughs> Well, Kevin, as we wrap up here, I want to ask what's next for you and what's next for Impactive? I'm not sure what's next for me. Um, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this being my last year playing. Um, Impactive growing as a company has been really cool. And, you know, my with my uh, long list of injuries to my body, I think I'm, I'm fortunate to have played uh, seven years pro now and you know I've, I've really been able to fulfill that childhood dream of of playing professional hockey i you know sometimes it, it doesn't it doesn't always seem like that to me sometimes when when i i look back and you know because at the time my dream was to be an nhl player and then i think well hey you know being able to play pro hockey for seven years of my life and and travel different worlds you know isn't a isn't a bad sort of second place to my, to my NHL dream and really fortunate to have gotten the opportunities I've gotten. And it's one of those things where I just see this moving with Impactive and spreading our word and and our mission around to the world about how we want to change the way that sports recover. And that seems like another opportunity in itself. So maybe this year will be the last year that I play. Then again, retiring will always will, will be tough i uh you know i i know that it's no secret to myself or anybody that knows me that once i i do leave the game i'm gonna miss it a, a ton and you know on on days there there's definitely days this year and last year and every year that i've played where i'm like oh, i could retire tomorrow but when it's all said and done you know it's it's a career unlike any other and um we'll see what's next we'll see what's next for impactive we're trying to grow we're trying to get our word out and we're we're really trying to help athletes excellent well why don't you tell us where we can best follow you and where we can best follow impactive yeah so i am on instagram and twitter my handle on instagram is ktans93 that's k-t-a-n-z 93 and my uh twitter handle is kevin tanzy six and for Impactive, we have Impactive High Performance. So Impactive HP is our Instagram. And our Twitter Twitter is Impactive CBD is our Twitter. And our Instagram is Impactive HP. Excellent. Well, Kevin, I want to thank you for your time today and your proof. As you say, dreams change. You go with the flow. And uh, it's very exciting to hear everything you're working on, that you've been able to continue your hockey career. And now you've got this business career. So I want to wish you continued success. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Andrew. My pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Kevin Tanzi, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. 
and we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.